Hey everyone, my name is John. I'm one of the pastors here at Peace Church. Great to see all of you here this morning, whether you're here in this room in one of our venues or joining us online. Great to worship God with you this morning. Hey, this morning we're starting a new four-week series on the book of Jonah. So if you've got a Bible with you, would you open it with me and uh, open to the book of Jonah. If you've got a Bible app on your phone, feel free to do the same. Jonah chapter 1 is where we're going to be this morning. Four chapters, four weeks. That's what we're walking through in this book of the Bible. We've got a little bit longer reading this morning, so I invite you to follow along, hang with me as we read it. I'm going to read, then we'll pray, then we're going to get to work hearing what God has to say to us this morning. Let's read Jonah chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea. So the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is God's word, amen? Amen, let's pray. Father God, thank you for this, your word. God, I pray that you'd open up our hearts, open up our minds, God, I pray that you would convict us, challenge us, encourage us. I pray that we would hear from you. God, I pray that you would speak to your people, your word through this broken instrument, that you would be glorified and the Peace Church would continue to follow you and have an impact on our community. God, we love you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So when we think of Jonah, we always think of that man who was swallowed by a great fish, 
don't we? Uh, even people who don't know many stories from the Bible have probably heard the story of Jonah. Uh, if you are a parent and you've got kids that go to Sunday school, you've probably heard that cute, happy little story of that guy who prayed and was in the fish. You've probably seen a picture like this, right? Maybe one of your kids from Sunday school brought home a picture like, look at this. Look at this happy whale. He's got a smile on his face. You got Jonah there, real, real reverent looking. You know, he's hands and knees just praying. Uh, and at the end of Jonah's three-day prayer retreat in the belly of the whale, Jonah got to, got to the shore and he, and he went out to go to Nineveh and he looked something like that, <laughs> right? Got briefcase in hand, sort of tip of the hats, just hops out of the whale and good to go, ready to go. Let's just go preach. Well, our kids' uh, Sunday school version of the Jonah story is pretty sweet and happy and cute, but I think as we're going to find over the next four weeks, the actual story of Jonah is not cute. It's actually a very tragic, very painful story about a prophet of God who runs away from God and also has a uh, very unfortunate view of other people around him. One of the unfortunate and uh, tragic parts of the story is actually that part with the whale. Uh, maybe you guys saw in the last month uh, uh, this news story. Uh, this, guy's, uh, this guy, uh, Michael Packard, age 56, was swallowed by a whale in the month of June. Uh, he has a lobster diver. He was diving down to grab lobster. They grab him from the, from the sea floor, bring him up to the boat to put him back in. He was diving down, and uh, according to his account, all of a sudden, everything went black, and he felt like he got hit by something really hard and really heavy. And uh, before long, he realized, I must be inside of something. Uh, at first, he thought it must be a shark. And uh, then he realized that he wasn't getting crunched by, by teeth or things like that. And so he started kind of thrashing and punching. Uh, his words were, were this. It, it went completely black. And I thought, there's no way I'm getting out of here. I'm done. I'm dead. Right? And you think when you get swallowed by a great fish, that's actually what you think. Right? I mean, that's, that's usually the end of a person's life if you get swallowed by an enormous fish. Uh, uh, this guy, he, he was kind of punching and, and thrashing, and he realized that the whale was kind of responding to him, punching and thrashing. And thankfully, his, uh, I believe it was his sister who was on the boat watching. She saw the whale uh, surface and saw him get spat out of uh, the whale's mouth and back into uh, the open air and the open sea. Pretty wild story, isn't it? And news media all over the place said, here it is, the modern day Jonah, right? People, even if they don't know the Bible, they know this story of a man who ran from God and who got swallowed by a fish, but it's actually not a cute story. It's a, it's a painful and a tragic story about running away from God and seeing what happens as a result of that. Over the years, many Bible teachers have noticed the comparison between the story of Jonah and the parable of the prodigal son that Jesus tells in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 12, or excuse me, in Luke chapter 15. Uh, the prodigal prophet is our subtitle, and that's the reason. Is that as we walk through the story of Jonah, we're going to see how Jonah the prophet compares to the prodigal son. Remember that man who, who went to his father and grabbed all of his inheritance and then ran away from his father to go his own direction, away from his father's will, and to run his own way. We're going to see throughout this series how Jonah compares to that prodigal son. For thousands of years, readers have been captured by the story of Jonah. And I think one of the key reasons is that Jonah is a lot like us. Right? Jonah is a man of God that has great potential for good. And yet when God comes to him and calls him to do something hard, he runs the other direction. And I think as we look at this story, we're going to see so many similarities between us and Jonah 
the story that we're a part of the flaws in our nature and in our hearts. So let's walk through uh, this book of Jonah and see what we can learn about God and about ourselves. And today we're going to do that by looking at chapter one in three different pieces. So here we go. Let's take a look at the first chunk of the story in chapter one. I think we could summarize the, the first chunk of the story this way. God calls and Jonah runs away. Take a look with me at verses one through three. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. For their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. So what do we know about uh, the prophet Jonah? We know from uh, other parts of the Old Testament that, that Jonah was unlike some of the other prophets of his day. Other prophets of his day, like Amos and Hosea, cried out against the king and the royal administration of the time in Israel for their injustice, their unfaithfulness to the Lord. By contrast, Jonah preached in favor of the military expansion of Israel during that time period. He was, uh, uh, scholars will tell us that we don't know a ton about Jonah, but from what we do know about Jonah, we can surmise that Jonah would have been considered a patriot, a guy who loved his country and had disdain for her enemies. And this man, this prophet who loves his country and disdains her enemies gets called to go to the city of Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital of the Assyrian Empire, a place that uh, was pretty brutal, that was definitely an enemy of the nation of Israel at the time. Assyrian kings recorded their military vict uh, victories on stone tablets and stone walls, kind of like these over here. Uh, in their records, they, they boast of, of fields covered in, in corpses, of cities burned to the ground. You can see if you look closely, maybe don't let your kids look too closely at the stone tablets there. You can see that the kings bragged of decapitation, of dismemberment, of torture of those that they conquered. When Assyrians captured their enemies, they would often cut off both of their legs and one of their arms, leaving one arm so that they could shake their hand in mockery as they breathed their last breaths. They would make uh, uh, families uh, march around the city with the, the, the decapitated heads of their loved ones on poles after being conquered. They would flay prisoners alive and display their skins on walls. I mean, this is pretty nasty stuff, right? This is a brutal nation that has done some evil things. And before Jonah's time, uh, uh, the nation of, Is of Assyria had come to Israel and put them under, uh, under their power. And so Israel was paying uh, heavy tributes and taxes to Assyria. And after Jonah's time, actually, they came back and, and wiped out uh, the northern kingdom of Israel, destroying them completely. So God calls this man, Jonah, who loved his country and had disdained for her enemies, to go to that country, the country of Assyria and the city of Nineveh. So the question is, how does Jonah respond? You can imagine that Jonah's not thrilled, right? You can imagine that he's not thrilled. And the text tells us, there's a lot of wordplay in the, in the story of Jonah. The text tells us in, in the first verses that whereas God told Jonah to arise and go to Nineveh, Jonah arose and fled to Tarshish. And if you want to get a picture of uh, the difference between those two locations, you can see it right here. Right? Whereas God said, uh, arise and go 500 or so miles uh, that way to Nineveh, you can see that Jonah essentially went the, almost the exact opposite direction, 2,500 miles. If you ever wanted to escape uh, uh, God's call on your life, you can't go a whole lot farther than Jonah went. And you might have heard as I read those first couple of verses of the text, the repeating of the word Tarshish 
righteous, right? The text is very clear. God told Jonah, go to Nineveh. Uh, uh, but Jonah, very clearly, it says he went to Joppa to find a ship to Tarshish. He paid the fare to go to Tarshish. He went away from the presence of the Lord to go to Tarshish. Right? The Bible's trying to tell us, man, this guy went the wrong direction. He's running from the presence and the call and the, the command of his, of his Lord. And the question I think you and I want to ponder this morning is this, why? Why does Jonah do this? In chapter 4, we're going to hear some specific reasons, but this morning I think we can, we can guess at a few of the obvious answers to this question. First of all, I think we can surmise that it would have been dangerous right? You just heard some things about the Assyrian people. For Jonah to go into the heart of Assyria, its capital city, would have been a dangerous thing. He could have been tortured and killed. Uh, some commentators say that uh, it would have been a lot like if a Jewish rabbi would have went into the heart of Nazi Germany during World War II to preach. It was a dangerous thing for Jonah to go there and to preach. We also can kind of guess that Jonah probably had a hatred for the Ninevites, right? It's likely that Jonah had friends or family members who may have been tortured or killed by them. We also can, can guess that uh, Jonah might have felt a sense of justice. That, man, these are evil, bad people. I don't want to go there. Just, just, just smite them, God. Just leave them over there. Uh, I don't want anything to do with these evil people. Finally, we know that Jonah might have uh, felt afraid of his countrymen. Right? Jonah is a, a famed preacher in his land, in the land of Israel, and he's going to go to the enemy of Israel and preach God's word to them. You imagine he might have been afraid that his countrymen would have thought of him as a traitor. Jonah, why are you going there to share God's word with them? Now, I think Jonah actually has a pretty accurate assessment of some of the dangers, and he has some understandable reasons to dislike the Ninevites, doesn't he? But the question I think we got to ask is this. When God gives you an explicit command, how do you say no? Right? So many of us wish that God would just speak explicitly, go here, do this, right? And Jonah gets exactly that. Go here, do this. And Jonah's response is, no, going to go opposite direction, right? I'm going to Tarshish. So why does Jonah say no? Why do we say no? Why do our kids say no? Right earlier this week, I had an instance uh, that was kind of like this. I had, uh, we were, my wife and I were at uh, my parents' house. And so me and my wife and grandparents were watching uh, my four kids play around the splash pad, had the hose running and the, the water fountains going. And, and one of my daughters uh, decides to grab a pail and fill it up with some water. And she's just swinging it and thinks that's cool. The pail can fly around and it's got all this water in it and it doesn't come out. It's this really heavy projectile pail sailing through the air and uh, across the yard, I me and then my wife starts saying, stop, stop swinging the pail. And she's like, I'm good. Why, dad? It's good. Why, dad? And before you know it, all of a sudden, boom, there's my one-year-old son. And if you see him this morning, you're going to see nice old big spot right underneath his eye. He got big, heavy uh, pail of water right to the face uh, in that moment, right? Why? Why should I listen to you? I know better. I know what's going on. I can tell what's around me. I've got a sense of the big picture. You just don't want me to have any fun. I know what I'm doing, and I just want to have some fun. Right? The answer to the, to the question, why do we say no when God tells us to do something, is that we think that we know better. Jonah thought that he knew better. Or, in other words, we think, God, I don't think that you know what's best for me. Or I don't think you care more than I do 
about my happiness or my joy. I think that's what's going on. The root of disobedience is distrust. Every time that we disobey, it's rooted in a distrust for the goodness of God. Uh, a similar situation just two weeks ago I had with, um, uh, with my daughters again. Uh, uh, one of our daughters decided it was a good idea to take her little brother who's two. And, uh, and uh, we always tell, we're, we're always telling the girls not to pick up the boys. We have two, two girls, two boys. The girls are the older ones. And we're always saying, don't pick up your brothers. They're little, you know, two and one year old. Don't pick them up. They're little, they're fragile, and, and you can't hold them that well. So don't pick them up. Just leave them on the ground. And, uh, and sure enough, she picks him up and she decides that even better than picking him up would be to set, her, set him on her bicycle and uh, to push him down the driveway. She thought that was a great idea. So, so, so she's pushing him down the driveway on her bicycle and you can sort of imagine what happens. Uh, bike hits a rock or, or whatever and uh, both of them go uh, end for end. He goes face first into the pavement. She goes sort of knees first into the pavement. Both of them are bloody. He looks like a unicorn. Uh, if you see him later, it's healing up good now, but big old goose egg, uh, red and nasty looking right in the center of his forehead. Right? They think, we think that we know better. They think and we think we know how to get real happiness. I think Tim Keller says it really well in this quote. He says, all sin against God is grounded in a refusal to believe that God is more dedicated to our good and more aware of what that is than we are. I think those words really cut to the heart of what's going on in my heart when I disobey. Disobedience of God is rooted in a distrust of God's goodness, who he is and what he has for us. We said that we often don't hear explicit commands from God like Jonah does, but we actually do. God's word is full of them. God says to us, I designed sex for inside of marriage. But she says, you don't know him. He loves me. He's going to be with me forever. It's like we're already married. Right? God says, protect your marriage. Divorce is really painful. Don't go that direction. And he says, but you've never met her. You can't imagine trying to live with her. God says, drunkenness is, is, is something to avoid. And we say, you don't know what I've been through or you don't know how much fun, uh, fun we can have at, at parties. You give in to pornography because deep down you believe that what God has for me in my spouse or in my singleness is not enough. We gossip because we believe that the pleasure or the uh, strange uh, uh, cohesion of relationship that we get out of sharing juicy news is better than what God has for us in other relationships. We don't take a day of rest each week because we believe that if we work harder, we can earn more. If we just do more, we can get better and we can cover it all and accomplish it all by our work instead of resting the way God calls us to rest. Let me ask you a question. Are Christians stoic people who have no desire for happiness? Is that what Christians are? Do we believe that uh, our job is just to do what God says and, and happiness is just not part of the equation? No, it's not what we believe. We actually believe in the pursuit of happiness. We really do. The difference between us and the rest of the world is that we know that we don't know what is best for us. Christians are people who believe that we don't know how to accomplish true happiness on our own. What we believe is that true happiness is found in following God. That he knows what is best for us and he knows what will bring us the most happiness. 
uh, throughout chapter 1 in in Jonah here, we hear the phrase over and over again, went down. He went down to Joppa. He went down into the ship. We hear that phrase, went down several times. The text is trying to tell us something symbolic about what Jonah is doing. Instead of arising and going the direction God called Jonah to go, Jonah goes down and away from the presence of the Lord. Now, you would think that the presence of the Lord would be like in Israel, right? That's God's people. That's where the temple is. That's that's, that's where God would be. But actually, God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh. And there's sort of the presumption that if God obey, or if, if Jonah obeys God, the Lord's presence will be with him. But instead, Jonah is going away from there and he's going towards Tarshish and away from the presence of the Lord. I think scripture is trying to tell us something. Where does the presence of the Lord lie? The presence of the Lord lies on the path of obedience. The presence of God is on the path of obedience. And every time Jonah takes a step away from the Lord's design, the Lord's call, the Lord's command, he's stepping down and into death and away from the Lord's presence. Whereas when we step onto the pathway of obedience to the Lord, we're stepping into life, into the way that God has for us. We see something similar in the story of Adam and Eve. Are you remember Adam and Eve in the beginning of the Bible? I don't think Adam and Eve just one day woke up and said, you know what, let's do something evil and ruin the earth for all humanity there after us. Right? I don't think that's what Adam and Eve had in mind that day. What did Adam and Eve want? Adam and Eve just wanted to be happy. Isn't that what they wanted? They just wanted to be happy. And the serpent came along and he told them this lie. He told them essentially the lie that God is in the way of your happiness. You want to be happy? You got to disobey. You want to be happy? God does not have your best interest in mind. That's the lie of the serpent. We think that when we can't understand why God would ask us to do something, or when we can think of strong reasons that it's not a good idea, that that gives us the right to say no. Jonah's first problem and our first problem is not behavior, but belief. Our first and foremost problem and Jonah's first and foremost problem is a theological problem. We don't believe that God has our greatest good in mind. We don't believe what the scripture says in Isaiah 41 when God says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. We don't believe what he says in Romans 8.28 when he says, In all things God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. We don't believe what he says in Matthew 5 when he says, Seek first the kingdom. And all these things will be added unto you. God gives us these promises about his goodness and about his design for us. But we have a problem with believing those. Distrust is the root of disobedience. Brothers and sisters, I want to invite you this morning to arm yourself with God's word. Arm yourself with God's word. Those promises that I just shared with you. When you have God's word deep in your mind and deep in your heart, That is what will equip you to fight the lie of the serpent day in and day out. When he tells you that God does not have your best interest in mind, you can trust in the promises that God has given you in the word. You've got to have those ready at hand and ready to go in the fight against Satan's lies. Let me also invite you to pray. Pray for God to give you faith. Every time you read your Bible, one of the best prayers you can pray is after reading to to say, Lord, I've heard what you've had to say in the word. God, I pray that you would help me to trust it. God, help me to, help me to have faith. Help me to believe what you have said is true. 
that you love me, that you have, your, you have a good design for me, that you have my best interests in mind, that you know better than I do. Pray for faith in God's word. Let me leave you with this question. Are you living out of step with God's word this morning? Brothers and sisters, are you living out of, out of step with God's word this morning? Stop justifying it and trust that God loves you and knows what is best for you. Stop justifying it and trust. Trust in his goodness and his design for you. Amen. Let's, uh, let's go on to the second section of Jonah chapter 1 this morning. Jonah and the pagans. Pagan is just another word for uh, polytheistic people, people who believe in other gods than the God of the Bible. We see this in the sailors in Jonah chapter 1. Here we go. Let's, uh, let's take a look at verses 4 through 6. Let's see Jonah's interaction with these people. Here we go. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give, you a, give a thought to us that we may not perish. So Jonah flees Nineveh so he doesn't have to talk to unbelievers about God. Then he gets on a boat and what does he end up doing? Talking with unbelievers about God, right? It's one of the first ironic moments in the story of Jonah and there's several ironic moments in this story. Uh, right, the storm comes, everybody's in danger, and whereas Jonah, you would think that he'd be out there uh, on, the, on the boat evangelizing, right, sharing the good news, hey, we're all about to die, you need to trust in Jesus, uh, or at least offering, hey, let me pray for us. Uh, uh, this would-be missionary instead is alone in the bottom of the boat, asleep. Alone in the bottom of the boat, asleep. And what happens next is that one of the unbelievers, one of the, one of the pagans, comes to him to talk about God and invite him into prayer. Right? That's what happens. I mean, I mean, I mean this, is, this is so upside down, it's, it's sad. Uh, and even after this, this man comes to Jonah and invites him into this, uh, even then, it's not until after they cast lots that Jonah actually shares with them who his God is. Even then, he doesn't demonstrate faith in God or encourage others to follow God or offer to pray. Uh, and even then, he doesn't demonstrate repentance or compassion. He doesn't say, Lord, forgive me for I've sinned. Uh, Lord, I'm going to obey. Lord, please spare the other people on this ship. He doesn't say any of that. Instead, he kind of has this, uh, this, this uh, melodramatic moment of like, oh, just, just let me die. Just, just throw me overboard. It's all over for me now. Commentators agree that Jonah has a tremendous lack of concern for other people in this story. So we've already seen the problem with Jonah's view of God, but I think now we're seeing the problem with Jonah's view of other people. From the very beginning of the Bible, we are told that every human being has inherent value because they are made in the image of God. Genesis chapter 1 says this, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Even those who are different from us, who hurt us, who are our enemies, they are made in God's image and therefore they have value. 
This is what God says is true about human beings. This is, the very, this is the very foundation of everything that we believe and everything the Bible says about how we treat other people. Human beings are not just flesh and bones. I've heard it said before that uh, if you were to add up all the, uh, the, uh, the atomic value of a human body, that it doesn't come to much. It's not worth a whole lot of value if you were to take uh, everything that our body is made of. But you and I know that that's not all there is to a human being, right? There's so much more. Uh, I've got this picture here of one of my kids. This is our third. This is Levi, one of our son here, sucking his thumb. And, uh, you know, I've got this thing here, right? You could say, John, that's just a piece of paper, right? Just a piece of paper. It's got a little bit of, little bit of ink on it. Cool. It has a little bit of value. Maybe it's worth like an eighth of a cent, right? Like, uh, like you could cut down a penny, and that's what that's worth there. But I know that that's not true, right? I know this is a picture of my son. This is a picture of my son, And because of the image that it bears, it has great value to me. And you and I know the same thing is true about human beings, right? You could say we're just flesh and bones, but we actually bear the image of our creator. And for that reason, we have value. It matters to God how we treat other people. And unfortunately, it's this truth that Jonah very much lost sight of. One of the things that we see in the text unfortunately, is that unbelievers are, tr- are, are treating other people far better than believers are treating other people. Whereas Jonah is solitary and asleep during the storm, what are the unbelievers doing? They're up there praying, right? They're up there praying for God to save them. Whereas Jonah is just ready to let the ship sink and just let everybody die together, the, sa- the sailors, after Jonah tells them, hey guys, it's my fault. If you just throw me overboard, this will all be better. What do the sailors do? Do they say, okay, sweet, let's just chuck this guy overboard and we'll all be saved. No, the text says that then they rowed hard to get back to shore. So they know it's Jonah's fault and yet they don't immediately throw him overboard. They're trying to row to get back to shore, right? The unbelievers are behaving far better than the believers in this story. To our shame, I think this is often still true today. Uh, I've experienced this in my own life. I'm sure you have some examples in your own mind as well. I can remember times in, in high school and college in the workplace, looking at myself, looking at others around me and thinking, man, guys, us, us Christians here are, are, are not looking good compared to some of the non-Christians in the room here. I have, I have non-Christian friends that I look at them and I say, they are a way better person than I am. I know that's not the theologically correct way to speak, but you know what I'm saying, that you look at their life and you think, boy, uh, what is going on that this person is living in a far better manner than I am? You and I live in a unique time of division in our country. I think we're living in a time when people are marked far more by their differences than they are by their similarities. And in such a world, it's imperative that Christians are marked as people who treat others with dignity. How do you and I go about doing that? I think that you and I are called right now to strike a middle ground that is totally foreign to people around us. I think you and I are called to strike a middle ground between two dangerous ends of a spectrum, ends of a pendulum, that other people around us can't picture what this looks like. Uh, Let me just kind of lay this out. I think Christians tend to fall on either one or the other side of this pendulum, but you and I are actually called to be right in the middle. Let me just kind of lay this out for you a second. Follow with me. Uh, I think one end of the pendulum is this. The end of the pendulum that says, uh, Christians are just supposed to be nice people, and therefore we're just supposed to affirm everybody. 
right? You, you tell me what you think or what you believe or what, what you live your life like, and I'm just supposed to, uh, to I'm supposed to have tolerance, which, which by the way, we, we've seen over the last, you know, 20, 30 years that tolerance doesn't just mean being okay with, but me saying, yeah, you're right, and that's great, and that's good, and I affirm you, right? I think a lot of Christians are stuck in this way of thinking that Christians are just supposed to be nice people, that when you hear about how somebody lives or what they believe, you're just supposed to say, that's wonderful for you. You do you, I'll do me. That's great. I'm so happy for you. Right? Christians are just supposed to be nice people. I think this is one end of the pendulum. We could call it relativism. On the opposite end of the pendulum, I think we've got something else we could call tribalism. The side that says, I'm good, you're bad, I've got it right, you've got it wrong, you're evil. Right? Uh, uh, vilify the enemy. There are good people and bad people, and I'm good and you're wrong, and, and you're evil. End of story. Piece of cake. And we'll just, we'll just stay apart. And I don't care what happens to you, and I'm just going to do my thing. I think these are two opposite ends of the pendulum, but I think that there is a middle. There is a way that God calls us to live, and I think it's this. That you and I as Christians are called to live in a way that disagrees with others with conviction, but treats everyone with love and respect. You and I as Christians are not called to affirm others in everything that they say or do. You and I are not called to vilify our enemies and separate ourselves entirely. Instead, you and I are called to have real convictions, to be able to voice disagreement with others, but at the same time treat people as though they're made in the image of God, because they are. This middle ground right here is so foreign to other people around us. I think as I look at the world around us, I think this is just for the next several years, this is going to be imperative for you and I to hold in our minds that this is what I'm supposed to do in each situation. It's so easy to go to one side or the other, isn't it? It's so easy to land either here or here instead of falling in the center. And people want to put you in one of these places, right? If they talk to you, they're looking for you to affirm them. They're looking for you to say, yeah, that's awesome. That's good. I'm with you. I agree with you. That's great. They're looking for you to be here. And if you don't agree with them, they think you're here. They think you must think I'm evil. You must hate me. You must think I'm, the, I'm terrible. They don't understand somebody who could land right here. I disagree with you. We're not on the same page, but I love you. I care about you. You're made in God's image. It's a hard place to land. It's a hard place for people to wrap their minds around it. But that's what Christians are, aren't they? We're, we're a strange breed in the midst of this world. Let me just walk you through a couple of examples of, of how this could play out. Here's, here's Jonah. Here's how this could have played out for Jonah. I think Jonah is talking with these sailors, right? And they worship other gods. They don't worship the God of the Bible, okay? These, these guys are, are pagans. They're on the wrong road, okay? Uh, Jonah could have just said, hey, you guys are awesome. You guys worship you, your God. I'll worship my God. Let's just, let's just be happy and go with it together, right? Jonah could have landed here. He didn't do that. Unfortunately, Jonah landed in the opposite error, right? And Jonah said, you guys got your, your, your thing over there, your religion, and, uh, and I got mine, and, and I'm going to just stay asleep in the boat, and I don't care what happens to you, right? Jonah has vilified his enemies. What Jonah should have done, we agree, is land here in the middle and said, guys, you guys need to know the Lord, the God of the Bible. You don't. You're living in error. You're living in sin. But I love you and I care about you and I want to share the gospel with you so that you can come to know the Lord and follow him. Jonah should have had the same opinion of Nineveh, right? He should have said, Nineveh, man, you guys are evil. You guys do some terrible things. I disagree wholeheartedly with your morals. And yet, I care about you because God made you and therefore I want to share the gospel with you so that you can come to receive grace and follow the Lord. We can also look at the life of the Apostle Paul, right? The Apostle Paul preached to Jews, to Romans. 
He could have landed up here, right? He could have said, excuse me. He could have said, Romans, you guys worship a whole bunch of different gods. Great, go with that. Jews, you guys don't believe in Jesus as the Savior. Great, go with that. He could have landed up here. He didn't do that. He could have landed down here and said, you guys worship other gods. You guys reject Jesus. And so we're enemies. You guys just stay over there. I'm going to stay over here. We're going to be against each other. And said the apostle Paul spends much of his life in prison, in chains, so that he can share the good news of Jesus. The apostle Paul holds fast to strong biblical convictions and yet loves the people and knows that he is in chains for the glory of God and the salvation of others. Brothers and sisters, I got this question for you this morning. Are you sleeping when you should be sharing? Are you sleeping when you should be sharing? You can think of that word sleeping in a couple of different ways. Think of the way Jonah did it, right? Jonah did not care what happened to other people. He's asleep, not concerned. Think of the flip side, right? Jonah could have been the person just affirming everything they did and just saying, hey, we're all, we're all good here and, and, and no worries and having no sensitivity to the, to the peril that people who don't know Jesus are in. Both of those is on the wrong side. Are we sleeping on either of those wrong sides or are we going to people and saying, I have strong biblical convictions. I know that there is truth. I know that there are moral absolutes. I know that we might disagree about some things, but I care about you because you are made in God's image and I want you to meet Jesus so that you can receive salvation. That's where you and I are called to land. Are we sleeping or are we sharing? The master could return at any time. Let him not find us sleeping. Last thing I want to share with you from Jonah chapter 1 this morning is this. Jonah and Jesus. Jonah and Jesus. We've seen this morning that Jonah is a deeply flawed character, right? We've seen that he's a lot like the prodigal son who takes off and runs the other direction from his father. We've seen that unfortunately, he's a lot like us, right? He's got flaws deep to the heart and yet great potential for good. But in the New Testament, Jesus makes it clear that Jonah is not just another character in the Old Testament. Jonah is actually a sign of Jesus. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 12. He says that Jonah is a sign of himself. So I want to close this morning by by just helping us see real briefly how Jonah points us to Christ. Let me just close with these sort of two, two pictures for you. Let me share that. I'm, I, I want to just, just say this. And, and so just, just listen and hear this comparison between Jonah and Jesus. Whereas Jonah ran from God, went down away from his presence, and actually down into the sea to what should have been death for his own sin, Jesus obeyed God's will perfectly, coming down to earth out of God's heavenly presence and ultimately down into the grave to pay the penalty for our sin. This morning, we are like Jonah, flawed, right? We have sinned before God. We don't do this life perfectly. And yet the good news of the gospel is that Jesus is greater than Jonah, that Jesus has lived the life of perfect righteousness, that Jesus died the death for sin that we deserve to die, And if we put our faith in Jesus, we can have life in and through him forever. 
Now, this is the best news that we could ever hear. Jesus is our Savior. The second thing, second comparison between Jonah and Jesus, and there's so many we can make. I just want to share one more with you. Here it is. Whereas Jonah, by God's mercy, was spat back out by the fish after three days, Jesus was spat back out of the grave after three days in order to deliver God's mercy. Jonah could have and should have died in that fish, right? The end of chapter one is actually not necessarily a happy note, right? He goes into the water and the whale comes and the story could have closed right there, very literally, right? That's the end. In many ways, Jonah comes back from the dead. Whereas Jonah, because of his sin, lands in the sea and in the belly of a whale and in death, what should have been death, Jesus, not for his own sin, but for our sin, ends up in the grave. But not out of mercy, but out of rightness, the grave could not hold Jesus. Right? The grave spits Jesus back out because he lived a life of perfection and righteousness. It could not hold him. It spits him back out because he's God. It spits him back out because he was there for our sin. The grave cannot hold Jesus and Jesus conquers the grave so that he can be our savior and a savior to all those who put their faith in Jesus. And you and I are called to be carriers of that message to the world. Amen? Amen. Would you please stand with me and let's close in prayer. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you this morning for Jesus who lived, who died, and who rose to save us from sin. God, we pray this week that you would show us where it is that we're living, like Jonah, running from your will, not trusting your goodness, not sharing the gospel, but treating others as enemies. And God, I pray that Peace Church would be a church that has a deep impact on our community. God, I pray that people around us would look at our lives and be amazed by the God that we serve. God, I pray that people would hear the words of our mouth and come to know the good news about Jesus and receive salvation themselves. God, pour out your mercy and your grace and your power in this church and through this church to our community. God, we love you and we trust you in all things. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.